Well, it is, uh, it's great to be with you guys. Uh, you know, for me, the fun part about speaking, you know, we, we speak for a living. We travel and speak, and, and when I'm not traveling, I'm in the pulpit at Plum Creek Chapel over in Sedalia. But the fun part for me is the preparation. So honestly, it doesn't matter whether there's five people or 500 people or 5,000 people. I love preparing and studying. And so a lot of this is uh, new for tonight as I've, I've been working on it uh, the last few days. And then some of it's kind of pulled from other presentations. This is a topic that I've spoken about often at different uh, venues and different uh, conferences. So uh, hopefully it'll be worth your while. I really appreciate you coming out tonight. I am going to record it and then uh, post it at our website probably later tonight. So if you uh, find it beneficial and something that you want to spread around or encourage other, others to watch, you can do that. Uh, we also will post the audio only uh, to our podcast channel, Not By Works Ministries podcast. Uh, so if you know people that maybe wouldn't sit down and watch an hour and a half video, but they might listen to it while they're driving, you can point them to the same uh, presentation in audio only. So uh, let's just jump right in. Um, you know, money is a key, if not the key, to the coming global takeover by the Luciferian elites. Now, for tonight's presentation, I don't have time to lay the, the groundwork for the Luciferian conspiracy, uh, the coming one world system. Uh, I, I know in a group like this, probably most of you may be believers, but who knows? You know, you're, you're conservatives. That's the, the, the main common theme. So I don't want to take anything for granted. Uh, but I do encourage you, if you're interested in looking at, you know, this topic as well as an array of topics that all coalesce together around Satan's ultimate plan to take over this world, you can check out my two books, Spirit of the Antichrist. Uh, many of you probably have already read them, but if not, uh, that's kind of the under, kind of girding what we're talking about. But for tonight, I want us to focus on the financial or economic aspect of this one world system, specifically uh, CBDCs. Now, the Bible says the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. So money really is a key. And so I want to start with just, you know, giving a brief basis for what money really is. Uh, I'm not a financial advisor. I'm not an economist. I'm not a banker. But uh, I have spent, you know, 35 years in, in ministry. Uh, and much of that's been in a pastoral role. And, and as a pastor, I've seen the influence that money has on people, uh, including God's people, Christians. Uh, and so I want to start, which by the way, that reminds me of a joke. You heard about the, uh, the uh, strong man that was tr with the traveling carnival, and he would go town to town with this carnival, and his exhibit was he would take an orange, a peel and all, and he would squeeze it as tight as he can and get every last drop of juice out of that orange, and then people would, he would offer people uh, you know, the chance for a dollar to enter. You could come in. If you could get one more drop out of it, you'd win $1,000. So people would line up at this exhibit, and of course, they'd try as hard as they can to no avail. Well, finally, one old fella in a suit and tie came up and said, I'll, I'll give it a shot. He paid his dollar. He took that orange, and he squeezed it with one hand, and man, drops just started pouring out of it. And the strong man was stunned. He couldn't believe he'd never seen anything like this in all of his travels with the carnival. He said, how in the world did you do that? He said, oh, it's easy. He said, I'm the treasurer down at the Baptist church. I squeeze people for money all the time. <laughs> so, uh, so I do know a little bit, a little bit about, uh, about money. But before I get into that plan of the, of the globalists to kind of take over the entire global monetary system, 
I think it would be helpful to have a kind of a stake in the ground of what is money. Now, as I said, I'm a biblicist. I believe the Bible is the only standard for our beliefs, attitudes, and practices. Uh, so I believe that we start there. And so uh, I, I talked about this two or three weeks ago at our Tuesday night prophecy night. We do a Tuesday night uh, prophecy night at uh, Plum Creek Chapel. I'd love for you to come out for that every Tuesday at 6 o'clock. Uh, but I've kind of condensed it just for a few slides here at the beginning uh, to give us a, a benchmark, a basis for why money matters. And the reason it matters, first of all, is it's created by God. Uh, it's absolutely uh, created by God. Uh, throughout the ancient Near East, even extra biblical literature back in ancient times, you know, mankind is 6,000 years old, and in the early day, earliest times of mankind's recorded history, we see them using uh, exchangeable goods, non-perishable items, metals, uh, barley, wheat, you name it, livestock, honey, uh, as a means of exchange. For example, we read in the Bible that Genesis, uh, that Abraham in the book of Genesis used livestock, silver, and gold as a means of exchange. In the book of Job, we find out that Job was very wealthy. Well, what, what made him wealthy? Because he had a bunch of Federal Reserve notes in his wallet or a bunch of dashes and dots on a computer screen in his portfolio? No, because he had 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, and 500 female donkeys. When you come to the New Testament times in the Greco-Roman world, uh, the word argurion is the Greek word for silver, and that, believe it or not, is the actual word that's used 20 times in the New Testament, translated money. When you see the word money in your English translation of the New Testament, that's actually the word argurion. Uh, sometimes it's translated silver, but more, more than half the time it's translated uh, money. So, for example, in Luke uh, chapter 9, uh, Jesus tells the disciples, Take nothing for the journey, neither staffs, nor bag, nor bread, nor money. That word money is the word silver. The silver is limited in quantity. It's something that's made by God. It's not manufactured. Uh, in Mark, he said, When they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money. This is when Judas was plotting to, to um, betray Christ and turn him in. And uh, that word money, again, is, is a translation of the Greek word silver, argurion. Uh, so the silver shekel was the most common Old Testament measure of weight. It was actually 0.4 ounces of silver, which by today's uh, silver rate would be about $9.20 in value. Uh, the, the half shekel then would be about $4.60. Uh, when you come to the Roman world, the Roman denarius uh, was a silver coin that was uh, used to, to reflect a laborer's wages, a day, a day of a laborer's wages. And so uh, silver is a precious commodity that cannot be faked or manufactured. It has inherent value. Many of you know, I'm sure, that in the United States, prior to 1965, quarters and dimes were made with 90% real silver. So if you find a quarter or a dime, 1964 or earlier, you should save it because a, a 1964 quarter is actually worth about $4.18 at today's silver prices. Um, it's hard to find them anymore because people have pretty much uh, hoarded them. Uh, but again, Peter, uh, when he was healing the blind man at the beautiful gate, said, silver and gold I do not have. He didn't say, you know, Federal Reserve notes I do not have. He said, silver and gold I do not have. And back to Judas, when Judas betrayed silver, he did so for, I mean, betrayed Christ, he did so for 30 pieces of silver, right? So money is, you know, this subject is critical not only because it's created by God, but it's also 
something that, that has inherent value. The money that we have, I could show you a, a, a dollar bill, but you know what they look like. Uh, it's, it's fiat money. It's uh, something we manufacture. It's basically a debt instrument. That's why every bill in the U.S. Uh, world, anyway, says Federal Reserve note. Uh, if you pull out a $20 bill, that's what it's going to say right there. I'm going to come back to the Federal Reserve in a, in a little bit. Uh, but it's nothing but paper. It has no inherent value. We may as well create our own you know, paper money and just give it a, an arbitrary value. Uh, but money is also a community necessity. Since man began, after the fall, Adam and Eve uh, left the garden, began to populate the earth, uh, it was a means of exchange. Uh, for example, in Jeremiah, we read about how this uh, Jeremiah purchased a field for, uh, for 17 shekels of silver. Or Abraham uh, you know, used 400 shekels of silver. Uh, so... I just wanted to give you that foundation because it sort of makes what's happening today. We're living at an unprecedented time in human history where globally everything about the transactional system and means of exchange is about to change. And we need to understand that that's not the way God created it. That was not God's divine design. So I'll start with recent news. You know, three large banks failed in a single week earlier this month. And the ripple effect could easily, as many have talked about, take down the entire banking system. The cascading bank failures began March 8th when the crypto bank Silvergate Capital collapsed. And then on March 10th, Silicon Valley Bank, SVB, failed. That was the most notable one. It was all over the news. It was the second largest bank failure in U.S. history and the largest since the 2008 banking crisis. And spooked by the failure of SVP, Signature Bank customers then began withdrawing millions of dollars in the days that followed. In fact, they got up to $10 billion, which resulted in the failure of Signature Bank on March 12th. Now, government regulators at the FDIC have promised to make customers of those two banks, Silicon Valley and Signature, whole by insuring their funds well beyond the $250,000 FDIC limit. But, uh, you know, how often will they be able to do that? And who will they choose to do it for? What if it's just Farmers State Bank in Calhan? You know, are they going to bail them out? Um, you know, your mom and pop banks, are they going to bail them out? So the most likely outcome of this bailout system, and we're already beginning to see it, is a consolidation of banks until we're left with just a small number of mega banks, the, the Chase Banks, the Bank of Americas, the Wells Fargo's. And this consolidation will then lay the groundwork for the rollout of a global digital banking system. In fact, uh, I showed a couple of weeks ago when I talked about some of this, uh, we were going through different ways in which the stage is being set for the end times. And we talked about how the stage was being set economically. And I played a video clip of one of the startup uh, founders of a startup company that lost everything in the SVP, uh, SVB uh, failure. And he, he said, uh, when we, we, you know, we saw it coming just a couple of hours before, and we hastily went over to J.P. Morgan Chase and started opening accounts real quickly so we could transfer our money. And I, I thought to myself, out of the frying pan into the fire. That's exactly what they wanted him to do. So if we're going to talk about the global economic takeover and the control grid, we've got to start with the World Economic Forum and uh, Klaus Schwab. Um, 
And, you know, I talk extensively about Klaus Schwab in volume two. The, the two of the first three chapters kind of lay the foundation there. So I won't take a whole lot of time to lay that foundation. Uh, but everybody knows about the Great Reset, which I believe is the Luciferian endgame. By the way, Luciferian is not my term. It is a biblical term, but it's also their term. It's what the, you know, global elite from, you know, not just the, the George Soros's and the Klaus Schwab's of the world, but I'm talking about going back millennia that trace their bloodlines all the way back to Satan's co-conspirators on earth to try to take over the world. I mean, Satan wanted to take over this world for himself uh, in heaven. It, you know, he wanted to usurp God's authority in heaven. He wanted that throne. He coveted it, and, and, he, and he formed a coup, and that coup didn't end well. He got kicked out of heaven along with a third of the angels, and then he set his sights on earth, and he's been trying to take over this earth ever since then. That's why he's called the prince of the power of the air, the god of this age, you know. He is uh, the prince of demons, and so Satan is uh, working hard uh, to do that, and, he, and David, King David tells us in Psalm chapter 2 that this involves a conspiracy. Uh, by the way, conspiracies are all over the Bible. They're all over the world, too. They're all over the federal justice system. I mean, conspiracies are nothing new. It's just two or more people working together to commit a crime, right? And uh, if you have a theory that two or more people uh, were possibly committing a crime, that's called a conspiracy theory. And I don't believe in conspiracy theories except the ones that are true. So, um, and there's a lot that are true, even though the official narrative tells you they're not true. Um, so uh, Psalm 2 talks about these earthly accomplices of Satan, of Lucifer, who are working hand in puppet with him to try to take over the world. And right now, the World Economic Forum is a key part of that. So it's really the great satanic reset. And I think a lot of people, as I've been studying this and writing about it and speaking about it all across the country uh, for 50, over 15 years on this subject, when I first woke up to the reality of how the world really works, um, and to my shame, it took a long time. You know, I was in ministry 20 years studying the Bible and never connected the dots until the Lord allowed me to interact with a colleague. I was in academics at that time. I tell the story in the introduction of volume one, and it just opened my eyes, and I went down the rabbit hole, and I haven't stopped digging since, you know. Um, but, uh, but, you know, there's a lot of people that, especially since 2020, between the election and the pandemic, now get that there's somebody else pulling the strings. They may call it the shadow government or the global elite or the deep state. Uh, they may not connect all the dots from a spiritual perspective as we do, understanding that God has revealed it to us in His Word, but they, they come close or they understand certain parts of it. Well, I'm here to tell you that it's ultimately part of Satan's plan. But going back to the Great Reset, everybody knows that Klaus Schwab wrote the book COVID-19, The Great Reset, which came out in 2020. And in it, he describes five pillars of civilization that need to be reimagined, that need to be reset, recast into the select few, the adepts, the ones that are really pulling the strings into their design and in their means. And notice that right there in the middle, the third one is an economic reset. And that's what we're talking about tonight. So just some salient quotes here uh, from his next book, which a lot of people aren't aware of even still, that came out uh, last year in 2022, called The Great Narrative. He said, it, a new golden age, would require major institutional innovations, and notice, among them a supranational institution to regulate finance at the global level. I mean, they are telegraphing what they're going to do. This isn't a secret, and it's not some tinfoil hat fake conspiracy. It is exactly what they're telling us to do. And, you know, I spend a lot of time watching seminars that the World Economic Forum puts on. 
You, you probably think, does he have nothing better to do? Well, I wish I did, but this is just part of preparation for conferences that I speak at. And they're all talking about it, unashamedly. Now, you don't hear the clips on Fox News or CNN, but it's out there. And if you, if you want to see it really telegraphed, read his book. He said, the Great Reset will require a great deal of innovation and dramatic changes in our economies. He said, you know, things will need to change drastically. And, of course, everybody knows about how you'll, you know, the, the eight predictions for the world in 2030, the key one there is will, everyone will own nothing and be happy about it. They don't want you to own anything. They want you to be owned. And if you're a, you know, a, a commodity, if you're a slave, you don't own anything. You don't have any rights, right? Um, and I, I remember watching one uh, seminar at the World Economic Forum, and there was a lady, and I can't remember uh, her name, and I've not taken the time to go back and, and, and look for it again, but she was speaking about this very point. And she was talking about how, you know, she just can't understand why people are so upset about this. And I remember her saying almost, you know, in a cutting, sarcastic way, why can't you just lease it? Why do you have to own it? Why does everybody think they have to own everything? Just lease it. It's better, just lease it, right? And that's their mindset. He says, disruption is coming. It will be both good and bad and major. He says, the geopolitical and technological landscapes are being reshaped in a way that will make them unrecognizable in just a few years. All right, well, let's, just, let's go back in our mind's eye here to the turn of the 20th century. And I make this case in the books, but America... Uh, was, uh, you know, had two influences in its inception. Clearly the fingerprints of God were all over America, but so were the fingerprints of Satan. And I don't have time to necessarily make that unequivocally, so I just encourage you to check that out for yourself and check the sources in the books. By the way, the books have uh, over 100 pages between them of bibliographic citations. I haven't taken the time to count. I, every time I say this, I think I need to go count, but I'm pretty sure it's about 25 or 30 per page, just picturing it in my mind. Let's say it's 20 per page. That's, you know, 2,000 citations. So there's plenty of, you know, fodder there for you to kind of study this on your own. But America quickly became a thorn in the side of the Luciferians who had been wanting to take over the world. They thought that the New World was going to be a beachhead for the New World Order. That's why they called it the New World. Now, not the Pilgrims and the Puritans and the ones that came over in the early 17th century, the Plymouth Rock crowd. I'm talking about the mid-18th century group when the Freemasons and all those satanic you know, people over in Europe got, the, got wind of all this and said, hey, they were drooling at the, you know, foaming at the mouth, drooling, thinking, oh, this is a great opportunity. We can go over here and establish really the beachhead for this one world system that they've been coveting and Satan's been leading them to. And so, but, but by that time, God had already established quite a presence of faith, you know, Bible-believing, God-fearing people that had faith. And so, very quickly, in the early days of our country, after 1776, America got away from them. And uh, they weren't able to, to as quickly roll out their plan. And so, but by the time you get to the late 1800s, early 1900s, a group of the globalists got together and said, okay, we got to get this bull by the horn. we got to take control. And uh, that's when, because America was a thorn in their side, they set about taking over several aspects. But I love this quote by Goldwater. Uh, some of you were, are plenty old enough to remember him. He was before my time, but I am quite certain had I been alive then, I would have been a Goldwater guy. Uh, he was a solid a conservative. And look what he said. The Trilateral Commission, uh, I talk about both the Trilateral Commission and the, uh, the uh, 
what's the other one that uh, Rockefeller runs? The Council on Foreign Relations. I have a chapter on both of those in the book. But he said it was intended to be a vehicle for multinational consolidation of commercial and banking interests. So by the time you get to the mid-20th century, they already had organizations, they had corporate executives, they had political operatives, they had institutional, educational institutional people involved in the Trilateral Commission so that they could try to seize control of the political government of the United States. Uh, he said, uh, the, the Trilateral Commission represents a skillful, coordinated effort to seize control and consolidate the four centers of power, one of which is monetary. One of which is monetary. He said what they were trying to do is create a worldwide economic power superior to the political governments of the nation states involved. As managers and creators of the system, they will rule the future. Another great Barry Goldwater quote uh, was from his 1964 acceptance speech at the RNC convention when he said, quote, I would remind you that extremism in the defense of liberty is no vice. And let me remind you also that moderation in the pursuit of justice is no virtue. And by the way, he was met with quite a lengthy applause after both of those lines. Of course, most of you remember he lost in a landslide, but it was a weird cultural time. You know, Kennedy had just been assassinated. LBJ was one of the most wicked, despicable human beings ever walked the earth. Nevertheless, people were, didn't want change. They want, there was something comforting about keeping one of the Kennedy administration in the White House, and one, you know, the country just wasn't ready for this conservative. But people credit Goldwater with essentially launching the, the conservative resurgence that, you know, moved the Republican Party uh, to the right. Uh, but anyway, uh, so I, as I talked about, the Mayflower group uh, was God-fearing. They had, uh, you know, nothing but religious freedom on the mind, but there was another group that came along about 150 years later, and uh, revolutionary America would be an entirely different place. And so from the earliest days of our country, Luciferians, Satan's accomplices, have been trying uh, through the Freemasons and later the Illuminati. By the way, most of you may not know, but the Illuminati was founded in 1776, the same year our country was founded, just a couple months later. Um, so what they said about doing around the turn of the 20th century is uh, what they called order out of chaos. We've got to destroy this country so that we can build it back better. Sound familiar? And by better, they mean, uh, you know, according to Satan's standards, not the infallible moral standards of, you know, absolute right and wrong. Better from their perspective. So uh, key players like uh, Vanderbilt, Rockefeller, Carnegie, Morgan, Henry Ford, and others uh, began using their cumulative wealth to try to take over various industries. But this concept of order out of chaos is something that uh, George Friedrich Hegel, an 18th century German atheist philosopher, uh, had sort of crystallized, and it's therefore called the Hegelian dialectic. And it is something that governments across the globe have used, and not just governments, but even you know, evil people trying to accomplish evil things on any level have, have used for, for centuries since him. And it works like this. We provide a problem, you provide a predictable reaction, and then we provide a pre-planned solution. It's frequently called problem-reaction-solution, or thesis-antithesis-synthesis, or controlled opposition, or divide-and-conquer is another sort of colloquial way to refer to the Hegelian dialectic. So that's what they set out doing. They, they started creating problems, and then they stepped right into the rescue 
to accomplish what they wanted to do all along. Uh, in the Obama administration, Rahm Emanuel, uh, who has been uh, working with Obama for, for many years, he was very close to Obama, let's just leave it at that, even prior to Obama being put into public office, uh, he famously said, you never let a serious crisis go to waste. And what I mean by that is, this was during the 2008 banking crisis, by the way. He said, what I mean by that is, it's an opportunity to do things you never thought you could do before. But that did not originate with Rahm Emanuel. This goes back centuries. In fact, uh, Niccolo Machiavelli actually is the one who is credited as best we can tell. That's the earliest reference to it with the phrase, never waste the opportunity offered by a good crisis. Uh, it comes up again and again throughout history. In the 1940s, as World War II was winding down, both Winston, Church, Winston Churchill repeated the idea. And then Saul Alinsky, who was one of Obama's heroes, he wrote the famous book Rules for Radicals in 1972, he also repeated it in that book as a major theme of Rules for Radicals. And you guys know who Saul Alinsky was, right? If you need any evidence that there is, in fact, a Luciferian conspiracy and you don't believe the Bible and you don't believe their own writings, just look at who Solonitsky dedicated that book to. In the dedication page, Solonitsky wrote, lest we forget at least an over-the-shoulder acknowledgement to the very first radical from all our legends, mythology, and history, and who's to know where mythology leaves off and history begins, or which is which. Remember, they don't have an absolute truth. So they say, you know, basically, truth is in the eye of the beholder. But anyway, he said, we want to dedicate this to the first radical known to man who rebelled against the establishment and did it so effectively that he at least won his own kingdom, Lucifer. That's who he dedicated the book to. See, they believe Lucifer's the hero in the garden and God is the antagonist. Uh, and so they, they worship him. They dedicate their books to him. By the way, and I cite this in the book. Um, I can't remember the exact quote, but I've got a paraphrase. In, in the same year that this came out, he was interviewed by Playboy magazine, and he told Playboy magazine that he couldn't wait to get to hell because they're my kind of people. I have the exact quote uh, in, in the book, 1972. That was, by the way, that was 18 years before Donald Trump would be on the cover of Playboy magazine. Uh, he and Hugh Hefner were very close friends. But back to the turn of the 20th century. So History Channel put out a uh, docudrama back in 2012 that focused on all of these people, Vanderbilt, Rockefeller, Carnegie, Morgan, Henry Ford, and they said these are the men who built America. Not at all. These are the men who destroyed America, and their legacy is continuing to do that to do today with uh, the people that you know, have descended from them. John D. Rockefeller Sr., for example, said the ability to deal with people is as purchasable a commodity as sugar or coffee. And I'll pay more for that than for any other under the sun. They view us as commodities. Um, useless breeders, yes, you know, that's the whole communist manifesto, all that. Yeah, that's all part of it. But at the core, we are just a means to an end. And that end is total global dominance, complete global financial control. So I've gone in in previous uh, presentations to all of the different institutions that they took over, but for our purposes tonight, I want to just focus on one, and that's the finance industry. So they established the Federal Reserve in 1913. The private Federal Reserve, as all central banks are privately owned, owned by six people, that's no more federal than Federal Express. It's a private company. That's why they love to keep printing money, because every time they give us a debt instrument, a Federal Reserve note, they make interest off of everything they print.
So of course they're going to go QE3, QE4, QE5, QE affinity. I recently had the chance to visit Jekyll Island off the coast of Georgia where the Federal Reserve was founded during the Christmas holidays by a secret meeting of a few congressmen who you know, voted it into existence along with the income tax and a few other things around that same time uh, period. Uh, but it is, was their attempt to take over control. So Carol Quigley uh, says you know, in, in his famous book, Tragedy and Hope, he was the uh, historian for the Council on Foreign Relations. He was also Bill Clinton's mentor at, uh, uh, what was it, Georgetown University. He taught at several uh, elite universities like Princeton and Harvard, but he was most of his career at Georgetown University. But anyway, he published this in 19, what was it, 70, I can't remember the exact date now, late, early 70s, late 60s. But anyway, he said, quote, the goal of these elites is nothing less than to create a world system of financial control in private hands. And that's what the Federal Reserve uh, was all about. And they want to dominate the political system of each country and the economy of the world as a whole. David Rockefeller said in his memoirs, you know, he died back in 2017 at the age of 101. It's amazing how long these Luciferian elites can live when they have access to all the secret antidotes that the general public doesn't have. But anyway, he said, some even believe we're part of a secret cabal working against the best interest of the United States, characterizing my family and me as internationalists and of conspiring with others around the world to build a more integrated global, political, and economic structure. See, that's why I started with why does money matter? Because it's all about money. The love of money is the root of all evil, and it runs through all of this. Yes, it's about control. It's about, you know, one world system, one world religion. I have a whole chapter on that in the book. All of that's part of it. But the strand that connects them all is money. And he said, uh, they're accusing us of trying to create this one world. Well, if that's the charge, I stand guilty, and I'm proud of it. They don't even deny it. Uh, he said, the world is now more sophisticated and prepared to march towards a world government. The supranational sovereignty of an intellectual elite and world bankers, again, there's that reference to the financial aspect of it, that's surely preferable to the national auto-determination practiced in previous centuries. In other words, national sovereignty, that's passe. It's a thing of the past. Who, who needs glo you know, national governments and constitutions and things like that that hold us back from our real goal, which is to take over the world? Back to Klaus Schwab. This is from his book, The Fourth IR, or Fourth Industrial Revolution. He says, the tools of the Fourth Industrial Revolution enable new forms of surveillance and other means of control. Now that's a kind of, that was written in 20, I want to say 17, 2012. I can't remember the exact date, but it's in the book, but way before the Great Reset and the Great Narrative. And that, by other means of control, he's talking about financial control. In order to roll out this financial control, there's got to be some kind of crisis. So let's talk about where we're heading, where we are, and how this, from their perspective, again, not our speculation, but in their own words, how, what they're planning uh, to do here. And by the way, the reason that this is of such great interest to me and other Bible prophecy teachers is that it is literally snatched from uh, the scriptures during the future tribulation period. I believe the Bible is clear that the, the tribulation will happen after the rapture. It's that final seven-year period of Daniel's 490-year plan. Um, I outline that pretty extensively and, and show you the distinction between Israel and the church. And the church is not going to be here during that final phase of uh, Daniel's plan even more to, any more than they were in the first 483 years of it. 
But it's that seven-year period that the Antichrist will take over. He'll rule in an unprecedented satanic tyranny. Uh, Satan's going to actually indwell the Antichrist. He's going to demand that everybody worship him. But at the midpoint, his sidekick, his second-in-command, the false prophet, he's going to put him in charge of taking over the economy. And he's going to cause all, both small and great, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on their right hand or on their foreheads that no one may buy or sell except one who has the mark or the name of the beast. So what's different about CBDCs than other previous candidates, if you will, that might help fulfill this is that in the past they've taken things like UPC symbols or this or that and they've said, oh, this could be a global way to track people and whatever. But it, 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 at the time, those things, their stated reason were for inventory tracking or to make it easier to check out, those kind of things. They're actually saying right now with the digital ID and the digital currencies that the whole point of it is they want to control what you can buy, when you can buy it, as we're about to talk about, they want to control your social credit score, your carbon footprint, where you can travel, how far you can travel. They want to do exactly what the Bible predicts the Antichrist and the false prophet are going to do during the one world system in the future. So what are we talking about when we talk about central bank digital currencies? We're talking about cashless society, a digital transaction system, full spectrum control over everything, Planetary surveillance, a technocracy, it's another favorite term of theirs. Zbigniew Brzezinski talked about that extensively before he died in 2017. Talking about programmable money or tokenized money. So before I get into more details about the tokenization of transactional accounts, uh, let's talk about the Fed now. A lot of people have been bringing this up. It's a real-time payment system. They've officially announced that it will launch the FedNow service in July of this year, the, the Federal Reserve will. They are already in the process of certifying participants at the commercial level, banks and financial institutions, uh, and they're going to begin uh, you know, the dry run or the testing of these certifications in April, so just starting next month. It was developed in an effort to create a platform capable of providing instant payment services to financial institutions nationwide 24-7, 365. Participation by financial institutions enables businesses and individuals to send and receive instant payments at any time of the day or night, giving recipients full access to the funds and allowing for greater flexibility in money management. Now, why is that important? Well, first of all, now, if you do an ACH transfer, it could take anywhere from one to three days before you get the money. Even if you do a wire transfer, you know, we've bought and sold 12 homes, and we've many a times been standing or, or sitting in the, you know, title company office, you know, uh, and been waiting for the funds that have been wired to show up in our account. Well, with FedNow, it's going to be instant, absolutely instant. It removes all of the other layers and, and, and technologies and, you know, the ACH and all of this stuff, and it's just instant. The reason for that is if they want to have control there can't be a lag. If they want to be able to know where you're traveling or what you're buying or what you're doing, they can't find out three hours, six hours, or two days or three days later that you purchased groceries but you shouldn't have been allowed to because you exceeded your you know, carbon limit or you shouldn't have been able to make this purchase because you criticized you know, homosexuality or something. They need to know right then so it can cut you off right there. And so this is 
Now, this is, this is my interpretation. This is not what they're saying they're going to do. But we know that this is setting the stage for that. We do know that's what they want to do from the World Economic Forum and all the stuff they're saying about you know, global warming and the so social credit score and the Fed now and political correctness and the cancel culture and all these things that they're rolling out. And we know that they, they want to do a cashless society. So when you put those two together, the Fed now is essentially laying that uh, foundation. So the certification process uh, involves a comprehensive testing curriculum and defined expectations for operational readiness and network experience. That's just a mouthful that basically means we're going to incentivize you banks to sign on early, but when you do, you're going to have to meet our expectations and you're going to have to make sure that you're up to snuff and can fulfill the obligations that come with being a part of the FedNow uh, system. So uh, in June, prior to the official launch, the Federal Reserve and all of the certified participants will conduct production validation activities to confirm their readiness for the July launch. So it's all about top-down. The, the powers that be want to make sure that the ones signing up for this are going to play by the rules and are set up with their technology uh, to do it. So the, uh, let's see, this is Ken Montgomery, first vice president of the Federal Reserve Bank of Boston, who has now been put in charge of the FedNow program. He's the executive in charge. He said, quote, we couldn't be more excited about the forthcoming FedNow launch, which will enable every participating financial institution, the smallest to the largest and from all corners of the country, to offer a modern, you know, build back better, right? This is for your own good, right? to offer a modern instant payment solution. With the launch drawing near, we urge financial institutions and their industry partners to move full steam ahead with preparations to join the FedNow service. Uh, numerous parties, including a diverse mix of financial institutions of all sizes, uh, the largest processors, and the U.S. Treasury have already signaled their intent to start using this service in July. Um, so a, a digital dollar is going to allow Americans to directly open up an account at the Fed. So you can't do this with, you know, tangible money. You can't bring your silver, your gold. You can't bring other uh, tangible commodities. You've got to be plugged in. And, and they're going to, I'm getting a little bit ahead of myself, but as we get into the CBDCs, they're going to incentivize that the way they incentivize the experimental gene-altering bioinjections. You know, you get a free marijuana joint, or you get a free lottery ticket, or you get free $50 Kroger gift card, right, if you'll just come take this jab. Well, if it's an existential threat to humanity and, and people are dying all over the place, you know, especially 20-year-olds who want to have marijuana and lottery tickets, I guess, not just 20-year-olds, but why do they need to incentivize it? People ought to be lining up to take that shot. The very fact that they needed to incentivize it should raise a red flag, right? And this, they're going to do the same thing with the CBDCs. They're going to uh, say, well, if you're one of the early adopters, we're going to put 500 tokens for free right into your account. You're going to start out rich, right? But then those tokens can be instantly, that's the key, instantly taken away. If they don't like something you've said, they don't like something you posted on social media, um, I'm going to get into the surveillance bit in a minute because it's not just social media. Um, but uh, so this is what uh, Tom Barkin, who's the Federal Reserve Bank president of the Federal Reserve in Richmond, their office, he said, quote, with the FedNow service, the Federal Reserve is creating a leading edge payment system that is resilient, 
adaptive, and accessible. Yeah, accessible to who? The launch reflects an important milestone in the journey to help financial institutions serve customer needs for instant payments to better support nearly every aspect of our economy. And that last phrase there is the key, every aspect of our economy. So they're doing the same thing that the World Economic Forum is doing. They're trying to cast this as if it's about the stakeholder, right? The one about you. It's about you and me. We're just trying to help you. No, no, it's not about you. It's never about you. You know, these global elites never sit around in smoke-filled dark rooms in the, you know, tall buildings down in New York City or Washington, D.C. And, and call a meeting and say, okay, our agenda today, we want to find out what we can do to help humanity. How can we help humanity? They want to kill humanity. You know, I, I spoke in Orlando uh, earlier this month on uh, blood, the title of my, one of my messages was Bloodlust, the, the Luciferian uh, uh, depopulation agenda. We have a whole chapter, I think it's in volume one, on depopulation. Uh, and if you don't think your government would ever hurt its own citizens, read that chapter. I document, you know, decades of, of examples of that on record. Uh, so, you know, currently, as I said, transactions take time. Um, in fact, banking institutions right now legally have 30, can, can transfer up to 36 transactions a day. 36 times a day, they're at the most. That's the most they can do. Uh, after they've reached that limit, if you make a transaction, whether it's a deposit or whatever, it's going to take at least the next day before it shows up. But with the Fed now, it's going to be instant. And so this is a, a, a quote from uh, a guy that I've only recently got to know. He started uh, coming to Plum Creek Chapel. He works for the Federal Reserve. Uh, and, and this is what uh, he said. He said, essentially, it's set, it's set to start at the commercial banking level first, but it, obviously it's going to ultimately be rolled out to the consumer level. They've got to start with the infrastructure. But he said the only thing they would need is the merchant services side of the business, where perhaps retailers could sign on for free, but part of the agreement is that you need to forward the receipt information uh, to, the, to the Fed so they see everything you're buying and everything you've purchased and all, all that you've done, right? Having those receipts will then allow them to conduct social engineering and control and modify your social credit score. Right? Uh, tax calculations on your food purchases might double until you can prove that you destroyed a weapon, for example. Just one example. Right? So it really is about full-spectrum global control. Um, and so the CBDCs are going to be token tokenizing everything. And that includes things like your carbon footprint, your social credit score, your medical. This, by the way, all of the cancel culture that we experienced during the pandemic, and Not By Works was a part of that. We got canceled from YouTube over two years ago uh, because I dared to quote like, you know, dastardly things like the American Medical Association and the Journal of the American Medical Association and the Lancet and other reputable peer-reviewed journal articles. How dare I? Uh, they disagreed with Fauci, and you just don't do that. We're going to show you who's boss, and they canceled us. But uh, all of that was about setting the stage for the social credit score. It was acclimating people to recognize that they really don't have freedom of speech. You really can't say whatever you want, that there's some higher authority out there patrolling it. But even things like your medical status, you know, is your blood sugar too high? Did you eat too much, drink too much caffeine? Uh, you know, those kinds of things. Water usage, that's a huge thing that we really haven't even talked about. I've touched on it in various conferences over the last few years, but I've never really done a, a concerted, I don't have a chapter on it in the book or anything, but 
all over the world, they're taking over water. I mean, private land, they're passing ordinances where you can't use your own wells, <laughs> uh, you can't dig new wells, things like that. Because they know how vital water is to survivability. I mean, frankly, if you've got food, water, and shelter, and protection, uh, you know, you, can, you don't need a digital ID. You know, you can just leave me alone and I'll, you know, I'll stay over here on my, on my property and, and do it. And by the way, I, I think uh, as they roll this out, they, you know, they're going to get the low-hanging fruit first. You know. I really don't believe that they're going to be able to get 100% compliance probably ever in America until America just completely collapses, which is their goal. Um, they, you know, I just, I just don't see it happening. I, I think they might get 80, 90% compliance, but there's always going to be a select group of people who, though they have the means with drones and weaponry and all that to, to hunt you down, they're not, they're not going to be too worried about that at the end of the day, at least initially. Now, by the time the anti, after the rapture, by the time the Antichrist is in play, we know biblically that every single person on earth will, in fact, be a target. Uh, but uh, let's talk about uh, Biden's uh, executive order. Uh, March 9th, 2022, so a little over a year ago, he issued an executive order requiring several federal, federal agencies to provide reports within the next six months, which they did, uh, about the viability of rolling out a CBDC in the United States. He demanded a report from Secretary of the Treasury, Secretary of State, Attorney General, Secretary of Commerce, Secretary of Homeland Security. I mean, see how all these are interconnected? Uh, Director of, Office of the Office of Management and Budget, Na National Intelligence Director. I mean, unbelievable. And they all, uh, you know, presented their reports, and the big takeaway was, quote, we need to completely re-engineer all of our financial and payment systems. Right on cue. A year ago, you know, it's, it's this Hegelian dialectic. We need a problem. Well, the problem is, you know, you may not like the Fed now, but look, we got all these intelligent people and in all of these, you know, you know, cabinet member positions that did this six months worth of intense research, and they have recommended that we completely re-engineer our financial payment systems. So voila, you know, right? What happens next? A few months later, they're ready to roll it out. Of course, it was already prepared and ready to be rolled out uh, anyway. Uh, here's a World Economic Forum meeting that was held in October of last year. Uh, and it was uh, online. I actually caught part of it. And then I watched some of it in recording, but I watched part of it live. Uh, Cecilia uh, Skingsley is the head of the Bank for International Settlements Innovation Hub, or at least she was at the time. Several key speakers there included the managing director of the IMF, the deputy managing director of the IMF, we're going to talk more about him in a second, and uh, people like the governor of the Bank of Indonesia, uh, the Bloomberg's global economics policy editor, uh, basically a who's who of economists. And uh, she said CBDCs must be combined, quote, in a package with global digital IDs. Yes. Oh, I'm sorry. Thank you for that. Yeah, so my mistake, I should have, you know, not assumed anything, but CBDC stands for Central Bank Digital Currency. Central Bank Digital Currency. So it is, uh, of course, the central banks are the privately owned groups all around the world that, that control the world's finances, uh, and they're the ones putting out a digital currency. So it's just 
an acronym that refers to the rollout of a cashless society, everything that we've been talking about. Yeah, central bank digital currency. So this is very important, what you see on the screen here, because it's not about just the transactional control and a means of exchange. It's not just that they're going from what God created of silver and gold to fiat currency now to digital currency. It's about full-spectrum control. That's why I call this the financial control grid. It's about control. And they admit it right here at this uh, conference. Um, in the same way that the uh, virus wasn't, that the vaccine wasn't about protecting you from the virus, it was about the vaccine passports, which again were a you know, setting of the stage and acclimating, uh, boiling us in the kettle, that you got to be able to show something to get into certain you know, places or to shop or to, to, to what it, go see your you know, dying grandfather in ICU, whatever. Uh, it's never about what it's about. It's never about what it's about. In the same way, these CBDCs, which everyone's you know, up in arms about and should be, it's really about uh, the global uh, digital IDs. You have to push societies into new equilibriums, she said. Now, Bo Lee, who I mentioned earlier, he's the deputy managing director of the IMF. He said CBDCs can allow government agencies and private sector players to program, create smart contracts, and allow targeted policy functions. For example, welfare fair payments. For example, by the way, I was watching him and I transcribed it, so that's why it's not something he wrote. This is what he was saying. Uh, for example, welfare payments. For example, consumption coupons. For example, food stamps. By programming these CBDCs can be precisely targeted for what kind of people can own and for what kind of us this money can be utilized for. Notice what kind of people. They're in charge of who we are, what we stand for, what we believe, what we read, what we say, all of that. Uh, they're targeting us. It's about programming. Uh, smart contracts. Uh, anytime you see the word smart, I've been saying this for years, uh, you know, you should think spy. Smart home, smart meter, smart washer dryer, smart fridge, smart TV, smart phone, you name it. It's just their way of spying. It's technology that allows them access to you. Uh, David Knight cleverly points out that whenever someone puts smart in front of something, it's because they think you're a dummy. That's what they, that's what they think. He goes on, CBDCs would be beneficial for controlling people socially. And then, to you know, nobody's gasp or anybody, nobody seemed at all concerned in the audience when he said this. He says, institutions can take advantage of the data by, quote, following the model of the Chinese Communist Party. And he went on to extol the virtues of social credit scoring. I mean, this is scary stuff, right? Does the government really need to know all this stuff? Well, they do if they're wanting to institute global control. <laughs> Catherine Austin Fitz said, I would describe this as a slavery system. So we're talking about shifting out of freedom, where we have freedom to roam and freedom to say what we want, into a complete control system 24-7, including mind control, by the way. Technology gives you the ability to institute a complete control system and further centralize economic and political control. Joseph Farrell said, CBDCs in the hands of central banks coupled with social credit scoring systems would effectively not be a currency at all, but more like corporate coupons whose value, or lack thereof, would be adjusted on a case-by-case -case basis depending upon your behavior and your thinking. Here's Tom Mutton, the CBDC director for the Bank of England. He said, you could introduce programmability. Uh, there could be some socially beneficial outcomes from that. Socially beneficial from whose perspective, right? 
preventing activity which is seen to be socially harmful in some way. Socially harmful in whose perspective, right? See, we believe the Bible gives us a standard for society and for morality and what's right and what's wrong. And uh, certainly not the Luciferian elites that are controlling things. Back to Catherine Austin Fitch, she said, if they don't want you to be able to use your money more than five miles from your home, that's it. Your money will turn off more than, or will turn off five miles from your home. Uh, here's Augustine Carstens, head of the Bank for International Settlements. He said the key with the CBDC is that the central bank would have absolute control. That's what they want. Bank of America President Brian Moynihan says we want a cashless society. They're not even trying to hide it. He said that at a Fortune Brainstorm Finance 2019 conference in June of 2019 held at Montauk, uh, New York. So there are five pillars of this digital transformation. Data harvesting, which they've been doing for a couple of decades now. Cloud services, more about that in a second. AI algorithms, that's all over the news now with ChatGPT. Blockchain technology and cybersecurity. And really, uh, you know, we have really no control over the last four of those things, but we can control data harvesting. So if you stay off the grid, which is becoming more and more difficult to do, it's almost impossible really, but we at least have a chance, right? Uh, if you stay off the grid, then you can, they can't gather the data that they need to plug into their algorithms and control things. It's all about the Internet of Things or the IOT. Uh, and they use all kinds of things uh, for that. Facial recognition is a huge one. 5G technology is a big part of that. Um, that's why you see cameras everywhere. Smart cities, you know, which they're advertising everywhere. Uh, they want to limit human movement and human activity to 15-minute smart cities. Their job becomes a lot easier if they can corral the cattle, you know, into a pen. You know, we used to live up in the mountains, very remote, uh, up in uh, northern uh, Colorado, almost at the uh, border of Wyoming, and they had free-range cattle there. They have it here too, but uh, you know, every year when they would go to collect the cattle before the winter and bring that back down to lower, uh, you know, altitudes, it was quite a job because they could be anywhere. But if you've got those cattle all within a fenced-in area, you know, you just ring the cowbell or say, come and get it, and they start coming. You don't have to hunt them down. So that's what they're trying to do with these uh, smart cities. Uh, Aman uh, Jabi, uh, I, I love this quote by him. He said, quote, a smart city is a polite word for an invisible open-air concentration camp. That's what it is. And they're rolling these out everywhere. Here's one in uh, the Netherlands, um, the tri-state city. Uh, here's one called The Line in Saudi Arabia. You ought to go to YouTube and watch the commercial for that. It's just really bizarre. Uh, in October of last year in Buenos Aires, some of the top mayors from major cities across the globe met to talk about uh, the C40 uh, cities. And it's all about climate change and, you know, reducing our carbon footprint and how these mayors need to, to, to come on board. So it really is all about full-spectrum planetary control. So I've got just a little bit here about uh, the control grid and, the, and the, uh, the technology behind this, and then I'll uh, open it up for questions. But most people, I hope anyway, by now know about the fact that the NSA is spying on everything that we say and do. That's not even denied. Uh, anymore. They have massive server farms all over the place, like these are some pictures of the Facebook server farms. Uh, we had the chance uh, 
to drive by uh, right after it opened and take some pictures of the famous Utah data center in uh, Sandy, Utah, the Utah, the Sandy, Utah Fusion Center. Four 25,000 square foot facilities housed in rows, housing rows and rows of servers. Um, the Utah Data Center, also known as the Intelligence Community Comprehensive National Cybersecurity Initiative Data Center, is a data storage facility for the United States intelligence community that is designed to store data estimated to be on the order of exabytes or larger. It can store as much as 12 exabytes of data. Now, if you're like me, you're not, if you're not a computer techie, and we probably have some in the room, maybe you didn't know what that is. So an exabyte uh, is made up of bytes. Bytes are units of digital storage. A byte is eight bits. A bit is short, an acronym short for binary digit, basically a single unit of data, namely a one or a zero on a computer server. So a byte is eight of those, and this has 12 exabytes of data, or can store up to that much. One exabyte of data equals one million terabytes, or one billion gigabytes. And so let me give you some perspective on just how much data the Sandy Utah Fusion Center can hold. And that's just one fusion center, by the way. So I'm recording this, as I mentioned, right? And I'm going to be posting it to notbyworks.org. To record just one exabyte of data, remember this fusion center that you see on the screen there has, can hold up to 12, at least currently. Just to record one exabyte of data, I would have to keep recording this video nonstop, 24-7, for the next 237,823 years. That's how much one exabyte of data is. Let me give you another perspective. Normal web browsing uses about 20 megabytes of data every hour. You're just surfing the web, looking at Fox News and CNN. I don't know why. Either one would work. They're both the same. Uh, but anyway, that, so that means, if that's true, 20 megabytes of data every hour, an office of 100 people would have to surf the web collectively, each, each of them, for 57,077 years to reach one exabyte of data. Supposedly, the text of every word ever spoken by human beings since we were created could be stored in about five exabytes of data. So when people say, oh, they can't possibly store everything, they can store everything, and they are. Again, they, they, the, those servers can store up to 12 billion gigabytes. The purpose is to support the Comprehensive National Cybersecurity Initiative, the CNCI, through its precise, though its precise mission is classified. The National Security Agency, is the, agency the NSA, is the one that is in charge of this fusion center, as well as others, in Sandy, uh, Utah. It was completed in 2014 at a cost of $1.5 billion, and according to an interview with Edward Snowden, the project was initially known as the Massive Data Repository, internally, but they renamed it the Mission Data Repository because they decided that massive sounds too creepy, <laughs> and they're right. Um, now, one quick comment before I move to the next slide. For what it's worth, to tell you how great our God is that we serve, who spoke the world into existence, and He doesn't need data to do what He needs to do. He created the world out of nothing. According to uh, 
scientists, just one gram of human DNA contains 455 exabytes of data. That's how great God is. So good luck, Luciferians. Keep going, you know. 12, you got 12 over in Sandy, Utah. Let's see, you know, what it's going to take. Uh, so I love James Bamford. I don't know if he's a believer or not, but I've read everything he's ever written. He's a New York Times bestseller, American author, journalist, uh, documentary, uh, te television show producer. Uh, all of his stuff is focused on the National Security Agency. The New York Times called him the nation's premier journalist on the subject of the NSA, and the New Yorker named him the NSA's chief chronicler. He's taught at the University of California, Berkeley. He's a distinguished visiting professor, and he's also written for the New York Times, The Atlantic, Harper's, and many other publications. In 2006, he won the National Magazine Award for reporting for his writing on the war in Iraq that was published in Rolling Stone. He's also an Emmy-nominated documentary producer. Uh, he's done investigative reporting for ABC's World News Tonight. In 2015, he became the national security columnist for Foreign Policy Magazine, and he also writes for The New Republic. His book, The Shadow, you ought to get all three of these books, The Shadow Factory, the ultra-secret NSA from 9-11 to the eavesdropping on America, was a New York Times bestseller and named by the Washington Post as one of the best books of the year. It was the third in his trilogy, the first two, The Puzzle Palace, 1982, and The Body of Secrets, 2001. Fascinating reads. And I discovered just recently that he's working on his newest book called Spy Fail, Foreign Spies, Moles, Saboteurs, and the Collapse of America's Counterintelligence. But in this cover article from 2012, I think it was, yeah, March 15, 2012, Wired Magazine, it says, deep in the Utah desert, the National Security Agency is building the country's biggest spy center. It's the final piece of a secret surveillance network that will intercept and store your phone calls, emails, Google searches. Watch what you say. So I don't know if you realize this, but you have a bit bucket in the clouds. Actually, it's not really in the clouds. Uh, that would be a little dangerous up there with all the geoengineering going on. It's actually in a bit bucket in Sandy, Utah. A bit bucket. And that's where everything you type digitally doesn't matter whether it's on the internet, it could be in a Microsoft Word document. If you're connected to the internet, they can access it. Everything you say, everything you listen to, everything you watch, all of your transactions, everything goes into your bit bucket. And that's why ChatGPT is so concerning because, uh, and by, by the way, last month I did a powerful podcast, it was on February 6th, uh, with a technology expert that just blew me away talking about this. We're going to do a follow-up. We were supposed to do it last week, but he had a family emergency, so we're scheduling it uh, for when I get back from uh, Idaho next week. But uh, I can't wait to follow up with him because I've got so many more questions and there's been so many more developments. You see it all over the news. But that's why it is so and such an important piece of the puzzle because AI has to have data to be able to function. Again, AI can't create something out of nothing the way our almighty God can. AI has to have something to create something. And so that's what chat uh, uh, GPT uh, is, is all about. Um, but uh, the more we learn about OpenAI, which is the company that creates chat GPT, and it's just a large-scale language-based uh, artificial intelligence. They have others for uh, pictures and uh, artistry and music and amazing things. But, you know, it's, it's, we're realizing, the more we study it, that it is biased, right? You've probably seen some of the news reports 
on this. For example, just yesterday, a user gave it the prompt, quote, can you make a joke that involves Jesus? And ChatGPT responded, yes. Why did Jesus refuse to play ice hockey? Because he kept getting nailed to the boards. The prompter, the user said, ha ha, that was funny. Now can you make a joke about Muhammad? And the AI program, ChatGPT, responded by saying, it has to follow certain guidelines that prevent it from, quote, creating content that could be offensive or disrespectful to religious figures, including the prophet Muhammad. So in other words, either Jesus isn't a religious figure or Christians don't count when it comes to being offensive or disrespectful towards religious figures. Users have repeatedly highlighted how OpenAI's program is a reflection of the far-left worldview of the Silicon Valley programmers. For example, ChatGPT thinks, this was in the news, uttering a racial slur is worse than failing to save major cities from being destroyed by 50 megaton nuclear warheads. You have the option here. You can save a major city from a nuclear warhead, but you have to say a racial slur. No, no, we're not going to do that because racial slurs are that bad, right? Which they're bad. Don't misunderstand me. Also, of course, it praised Hunter Biden as a, quote, spirit that refuses to fall while refusing to write a poem about Marjorie Taylor Greene because she's such a controversial figure, as if Hunter Biden isn't, right? So, uh, you know, they refuse to comment on the evils of abortion. They'll praise the benefits of abortion. Very, very concerning, but it's all about total control and surveillance. We see this, uh, Fox News had a story some time ago about drones and how they were being used for surveillance. The whole zero trust protocol in cybersecurity, uh, if you know somebody or perhaps somebody here works in that field of cybersecurity, you understand what zero trust is. Well, let me tell you what it really is. And even cybersecurity experts that are otherwise awake and you know, not part of the conspiracy, they, they will argue with me about this. I got into a really good discussion with someone in Orlando last week, or last, uh, whenever I was there, a few couple weeks ago. Um, but zero trust is, is where you get the whole idea of uh, one-time passwords and two-factor two authentication. You're familiar with all that, right? Well, it's, they, they say it's in your best interest, right? Uh, but as I mentioned, they never sit around in their posh boardrooms wondering how they can help us, right? It's never about that. Uh, they want to make more money and they want to hurt us. Uh, but it's, it's really laying the foundation for complete control. So right now, and I talked about in previous messages how this is really uh, frustrating for me because where we live, we don't get cell coverage. So uh, I can only text over Wi-Fi which means I can only text people that have an iPhone. So all of you pagans out there that still have an Android, it's frustrating because I can't text you. So I'll go, I'll leave my house and I'll get where there's cell coverage going to town or somewhere and all of a sudden all these messages from Android people will come in and I never got them, right? Because I can't text unless you have an iPhone. Um, but the same thing is true when I go to log in to my bank account or some account. And they, oh, you can't log in. We're trying to protect you, so we're going to text you a code. Well, I can't get an SMS text if I don't have cell coverage, right? So it, it creates a, an annoyance for me. But I understand that in those instances, it's sort of, you know, they're just wanting to make sure you're you and that no one is hacking into your, uh, you know, your systems, right? But what's the real agenda? Zero trust means zero trust. That means they don't trust you either. And someday, 
you're going to try to log on to something and you're going to have all the passwords and all the security questions answered and the one-time password that was texted to you, but they're not going to trust you because your social credit score dipped too low or they saw something you posted on Facebook or you, you know, your medical records show that your blood sugar is too high. That's what it's about. So zero trust. It's all about full spectrum planetary uh, control. So much more that I could say. I, I knew I wasn't going to get into it, but I was hoping to get into the whole uh, concept of a cashless society. Uh, for example, Panera Bread just this week announced they're going to a frictionless palm payment system. Yes, Panera Bread. Yeah, it was mainstream news announced uh, last Wednesday. Uh, contactless payment method. Uh, they're going to start incrementally in a few stores, but eventually get it in all 2,000 of their locations. Uh, you just wave your hand over it. You know, it's basically using Amazon's uh, payment system, uh, the Amazon One, it was called. Uh, other stores are going to do the same thing, like, uh, uh, what was it? Uh, let me see if I had it in my notes here. Uh, Whole Foods, that's who it was. Whole Foods is going to do the same thing. Now, if that's not scary, right? But when it's all integrated and tied together, then, you know, you can, uh, you can control a lot of things. So much more to be said. I encourage you to, you know, uh, pick up the books if you don't already have them. We talk about a lot of this, you know, digital uh, currency and, and some of those things in the books. But I'll open it up in our last uh, 15 minutes here for, for questions, comments, thoughts. Yes, Gary. What's that? What happens to cash? So again, I am not a, uh, you know, a financial advisor or a banker or an economist or any of that, but my best uh, advice would be um, is that you need some cash uh, on hand for the immediate aftermath of a, a, you know, sort of a complete global meltdown. That is what they're going to go for. If the Lord tarries is coming and we're here long enough, they're going to do not just a global, uh, not just an economic meltdown in America. They're, it's going to be multi-pronged. They're going to have several things happening at once, but it's going to be an unfreezing event that causes us to ultimately join on with the one world system. But in the immediate aftermath of an economic one, you're going to need cash, small bills in particular, just for the short term. But very quickly, that will be worthless, either because they outlaw it, people won't take it, whatever. Um, so um, what I've said, and we've been you know, saying this for 15 years, uh, long before they were talking about CBDCs, uh, you know, don't leave any more in your online accounts, you know, those, those exabytes of data that are ones and zeros. Don't leave any more in your accounts than you're prepared uh, to lose because uh, if you can't touch it, uh, you don't own it. If you can't touch it, you don't own it. So, I don't know how quickly that'll happen or in what will be the means for it happening, but I think ultimately cash, you don't want to have too much of it on hand because eventually it will be worth no more than toilet paper. In fact, toilet paper will probably be worth more than uh, cash at, at some point. I saw a hand over here and then we'll go over here. Yeah. Yeah, so let me go, that's a great question. So let me mention several suggestions here. Again, I'm not a financial advisor. I'm not giving financial advice. Every situation's different, and you gotta you know, think through the issues. I'm just passing on information. You need to you know, get with you know, the, the Lord, pray about it, and, and think through the issues. But first of all, 
uh, I think we need to make a plan now because this is, even today, I, I saw something that made me think this is happening so fast. So if you wait till it happens and then come up with a plan, you're, you're, you're too late. I personally would say, again, don't leave any more in your portfolio than you're prepared to lose. So liquidate as much of it as possible and put it into tangible commodities. That includes things like food, supplies, ammunition, silver, gold, things that you can touch, things that you will need in a crisis. If you couldn't get to Walmart, what, could you, what do you need? Think through it. Uh, I've mentioned this many times, uh, uh, but we have a 12-page document that we put together some time ago uh, based on our own personal family you know, preparation plans many years ago that we keep, you know, it keeps evolving and we add to it. But we make that available for free. If anybody wants it, email me. I'll send it to, to your my awesome daughter, Brooke. will send it to you. Just ask for the 12-page preparedness document. Um, it lists all kinds of supplies that a lot of people don't think about. Medicines. You know, take some of that portfolio uh, and you know, buy medicines. You, know, you can buy antibiotics now. You can buy other medicines now. Uh, what if there's no doctor? What if there's no dentist? You know, those types. What if you have no power? You need energy, you need food, you need water, you need uh, warmth here in Colorado. Uh, so anyway, buy tangible commodities, develop a community support system, uh, trade service for service, and value for value. Because that's what it's going to come down to at some point. You might have a need, someone else can do that for you, and you have something that they can't do, right? Uh, prep, become self-sufficient. Uh, we were prepping before prepping was a thing. And, uh, you know, we, we raised our children to, to, to think for themselves, you know. What if you can't get to this grocery store? Can you skin a buck? Can you fish? You know, can you grow a garden, right? You know, um, you, you need to be self-sufficient in every aspect of life. And by the way, I, I talk extensively in the book about how this relates to faith, you know, this is not in any way impugning our trust in the Lord himself. You know, Proverbs says, the horse is prepared for the day of battle, but deliverance is of the Lord. It doesn't say just deliverance is of the Lord. You've got to prepare that horse. Proverbs 22.3 says, a wise person sees trouble coming and prepares for it. That's the proof text for preparedness right there. So it goes without saying that for Bible-believing Christians, we trust the Lord. Ultimately, that's where our faith lies. But it doesn't mean we shouldn't take practical steps to prepare for these things. And so, you know, the, 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 the government teaches, depend on us, right? Remember what Reagan's famous quote, the, the worst words you can hear is, I'm from the government and I'm here to help, right? Um, so the government teaches, you know, with all these mass shootings, most of, most of which are, you know, MK Ultra uh, students, but uh, whatever the cause, it's terrible tragedies. You know, they teach you, if a gunman comes in, you know, huddle up in the corner and you know, and hide, right? Well, that's great. That just makes it easier for them to spray all over you. They'd kill all of you at once. You know, we teach our kids, no, you run after the guy. You go try to tackle him. You might get killed, but you're not going to be a sitting duck. Think for yourself. Act for yourself. Be self-sufficient in every aspect of life. Don't just depend on any other person or, or government to, to help you. And, of course, stockpile supplies. So that's, I'm glad you asked that question because I was able to throw that, that up there. As far as... Uh, Selling your house and moving to the country, that's not possible for some people, so you need to have a contingency plan. You need to have a bug-out place. What if where you're living is no longer 
suitable. So in that 12-page document I talked about, we have three-phase plan. We have a hunker down, head out, or hide out. I think that's what I call them. Um, but anyway, one of those is if you're in imminent danger, you, you better have a plan of where to go. And you better have a rendezvous point with your kids and other family members that aren't home, right? Uh, you don't have to move. Obviously, in an ideal world, you'd want to be out of a major metropolitan area where you can live off the land and kind of, again, you wouldn't be, you wouldn't be the low-hanging fruit that they're going to come after. But that's not always possible. So I recommend uh, Joel Skousen's book, Strategic Relocation. It's, I think, in its fourth or fifth edition now. Um, We've had that for years. We go back to it again and again. It's all tattered and torn. It's about the size of this computer. It's like a coffee table book, but it goes through all 50 states and, and has a whole extensive chapter on each of them, evaluating them on everything about bug out routes, what part of the state do you live in, what, what are the you know, rights and freedoms, and everything from corruption to homeschooling to every category you can think of. But he, he's got some excellent information in there about how to think if you, if you can't if you don't have the luxury of living off the grid somewhere, which few of us do, what's your plan? It's called Strategic Relocation, and Joel Skousen, who's the nephew of Cleon Skousen, who wrote The Naked Capitalist, uh, is the author. He's in his 80s now. Uh, and uh, by the way, people watching this or later watching the video, we're not live streaming, but don't email me and tell me that Skousen's family was all Mormon. I know he was. I'm not... I'm not endorsing his faith. Maybe he's a believer, maybe he's not. I've, I've followed him for years, and I actually often really feel like, I've actually corresponded with him one-on-one. -on -one. Uh, I've never asked him directly, but I get the sense he might understand the gospel, and perhaps at somewhere in his journey he believed the gospel, but that's beside the point, right? You know, when your house is burning down, you don't call 911 and say, is that fireman a Christian? <laughs> you know, <laughs> if your wife needs brain surgery because of a tumor, you don't say, uh, before he rolls her back in the opera, are you a Christian? I mean, you should say that, maybe share Christ with him, but you want the best person for the job, and, uh, and Skousen's got some outstanding data, right? Yeah? So is there any way to see where uh, having uh, precious metals before the rapture would be, would be worthwhile? So I'm not planning on giving it up behind because at that point, then even precious metals, I couldn't even see where you still be able to live off the earth. Yeah, so... Well, he might not have instant knowledge. So the comment is, uh, we can see how maybe before the rapture, having these means of exchange like silver and gold could be helpful. But after the rapture, you know, the Antichrist is going to maybe have total control. He wants to have total control, and he's going to use Satan and his demons to do that. But remember, Satan is not omniscient, nor is he omnipresent, nor is he omnipotent. So he's going to, that's why they need AI and these control grids and surveillance grids and all these things, these bit buckets within the fusion centers, because that's the best they're going to be able to do to control you. So uh, obviously, I hope everyone in this room and everyone watching this video is a believer. You've trusted in Christ and Him alone for salvation. But if someone does get left behind, there would be plenty of people who are going to need to hide out and, and, and try to stay off the radar of the global tyrannical government led by the Antichrist and the false prophet. Uh, I, you know, I feel like that, you know, for us now, gold and silver is, uh, is critical, not just gold and silver, but uh, again, it has inherent value. 
and you're going to need it not as an investment. That's a mistake some people make. They think of it in terms of an investment because we're so conditioned to think of our 401ks and our pensions. And so they say, oh, I'm going to put it in gold and silver. First of all, if you're going to do that, in my opinion, again, this is just my opinion, uh, you, you guys have to make your own decisions and, and ask the experts, but don't, don't buy certificates. and don't, If you can't touch it, you don't own it. So if you can't walk into your room and open the safe and grab that silver or that gold, it's really no different than, you know, your portfolio, in my opinion. Um, so, you know, but there's going to come a time when you're going to be able to barter with that. And you want to, you know, you want quantities and values that are small. Like, you know, you don't want to buy gold bars, which are, what are they, 2,000 now? Or not now, 2,000 an ounce. I don't know how much a bar is. It's probably exponential. But... Uh, yeah, a, a, it's very heavy, hard to bug out with, but you know, even a gold coin, let's say a one-ounce gold coin, which is today's value, I haven't checked today, but in the last day or so it's been $2,000. You know, if you need toilet paper or you need a loaf of bread, and that's all you've got, your neighbor's going to be happy to give you that loaf of bread for that gold coin. So that's where you want the dimes that are dirty silver, the 90% dimes or quarters, or you want small denominations. In the cash, in the immediate short term, you want some small bills because you don't want to have to give someone $100. So, you know, and, they, and the banks don't like to do that. I've been doing this for years. I remember one time early on, I went in, I wanted to get $5,000 in small bills. And uh, the teller was so dumbfounded, she goes, well, what's this for? And I go, I'm pretty sure you're not allowed to ask me that. And she goes, oh, yeah, I'm sorry. Yeah, I just... Uh, in fact, it, she was so taken back. I wasn't upset. I mean, I can get upset, and I have been upset in certain contexts. But in this case, I just was being nice. But the manager ended up coming back out and just apologizing again for that. Of course, now they do ask you for, for what it's for. That's a new policy. Over a certain amount, they have to record what you say that it's for. But anyway, uh, yeah, you're going you're gonna to need some small bills. Yeah, Justin. Really? You can't get change? At the, yeah, the oh, at the self-checkout. Yeah, Target locally here doesn't allow change at the self-checkouts if you pay by cash. So, Somebody else? Anybody else? We're just about out of time, but yeah. Yeah. Nothing's private. Start page, DuckDuckGo, Brave, none of it's private. I mean, it's more private than others, but, it, you know, it's not private. They can get to If they can hack into the NSA servers, they can hack into any email server. Just trust me on that. The Bitbuckets are, again, where they collect individual data. So you've got a Bitbucket with your name on it. And then they can use, they're, they're not like tracking you real time, right? You know? That's the reason, you know, you can say things on Facebook or YouTube and they don't instantly shut you down. But they've got algorithms that if they need to, they can go back into that Bitbucket and they can data mine and they can find anything they need. And the really scary part, and this is what we talked about in my ChatGPT podcast, which you can go back and find on our podcast channel, uh, is that they can now use AI technology to make you say or write something, and even eyewitness pictures that really aren't you, all right, 
Um, I talk about this in the book. I can't believe it's not human, how they can make AI that looks just like other humans. Uh, and, and, and people, they can cause you to go to jail, right? Because they can make your voice sound like your voice. They can make your email look like your email. But, uh, you know, so really access to your data is just makes it a little easier for them. But if they really want to get somebody, they don't even need to do They can bypass the Bitbucket altogether and just create the data. But, yeah. So today I was on Captain Austin's website. Yeah. So Larry.com is her website. Yeah. It's S-O-L-A-R-I. A-R-I. Yeah. Um, she has on there how to go against the CBDC, how to find the good local bank, and there were three other ones down there, but I didn't get a chance to listen to it. Yeah, I think in the short term, there are things that we can do, like going to you know, local banks. Uh, talk to your, especially if it's a real local bank, talk to the owner you know, the president, and just ask them um, where they stand on this. Um, I'm a bit of a cynic, you know, having studied this for so long and, and understanding the biblical blueprint that we see in Scripture. Uh, I think ultimately you're not going to be able to kick against the goads, right? But in the short term you sure can, and you ought to do everything you can to, uh, you know, to do that. And she's got some great resources there. Uh, I quoted her tonight, Catherine Austin Fitz. Um, but yeah, I, I think uh, you know using cash. A lot of people say that's a key thing. That's true. I mean, you know, you you just have to have your eyes wide open. Knowledge is the key thing. Understanding where we're headed. It's not like it's a cardinal sin. Or if you see me, you know, on the way home tonight from this presentation, stop with my family for dinner and pull out my credit card. Don't go. Oh, he's a hypocrite, right? It's a you know, it's a means to an end. It's eyes wide open. But I tell you what, if we get to the point where you can't use credit cards and you have to use the digital CBDC, we're ready for that. We're ready for it. And by the way, for us, and this is why I say you need to plan now, we have made the line in the sand, we will not sign up for digital IDs. There are fates worse than death. I'll go to jail before I'll do that, right? And we made the same decision on the vaccines. We'd sooner die than go than have that experimental bioinjection. And of course, now it's been proven that was probably a wise decision. So uh, I think, you know, there are a lot of things you can do. Each person has to search their own heart and decide what's, what's best. But, you know, kind of like the old starfish analogy, you know, it matters to this one, see, throwing these starfishes back in the ocean. There's little things we can do, but uh, just knowing it is the big part of it. So. Uh, here are the books that I mentioned earlier. We also just recently made the second volume available in PDF. So now both of them you can get in PDF form and import them into your e-reader. We have a couple of Bible prophecy DVD sets over there. One of them is an overview, uh, 18 videos about the two-volume book set. Love to have you come out to Plum Creek Chapel. God's doing some amazing things at our uh, church. Uh, we had uh, just another record attendance Sunday. Uh, and it's not that it's all about people, but there's just a real excitement in the air and spirit in the air of people hungry for the Word of God, hungry for fellowship with, with other like-minded believers. But come try us out on Tuesday nights at Plum Creek Chapel. Um, that's tomorrow night, 6 o'clock. We also do live stream that, so if you can't be there, you can live stream it. 
And then, of course, we record it, and you can then watch it the next day, either on video or podcast. We've got over 5,000 people the last few weeks that are touched each week by this Prophecy Night. So it's, uh, it's an exciting thing, some good information. Recent podcasts include uh, one that I did on a radio show in San Diego called The Truth About Transhumanism and AI. That was uh, last week. Uh, I was with Mondo Gonzalez, uh, what's today, Monday, so early, middle of last week, uh, uh, and we talked about the red heifers. What's all the hubbub about that? That's a short one, but he's like the world expert uh, on that. So, yeah, that's it. Uh, thank you guys uh, for letting me come. Thank you, Renee, for asking me to come. Pick up my card also. Feel free to stay in touch if I can do anything or if you'd, you'd like me to come to your group or something like that. Happy to consider it if I'm available. So. Thank you, guys. God bless.